This podcast is brought to you by VinZero. VinZero pioneers solutions and services to the AEC and manufacturing industries to support net zero targets. Visit VinZero.com to learn more about how organisations design, build and solve through digitalisation. From VinZero to you, welcome to our Think Future podcast series. Each week we'll share conversations with industry leaders from around the world to find out how they're thinking future. Subscribe to VinZero Think Future for access to more episodes, interviews and profiles. Samantha Pert is the Global Head of Sustainability for Hassel, responsible for embedding its sustainability framework across the practice and ensuring the innovation of sustainable design. Samantha's work has spanned 20 different countries, including 10 years with Arab, delivering sustainability strategies and initiatives for commercial and residential buildings, healthcare facilities, retail developments, university campuses, and large-scale infrastructure projects. Samantha has a Bachelor of Engineering in Civil and Environmental and a Diploma of Engineering Practice, and she joins us today to share how Hassel are continuously innovating their approach to design. Welcome to the program, Samantha. Thanks so much for having me out there. I'm looking forward to having a chat today. Samantha Hassel are calling for a new state of togetherness centred around reconnecting people, reviving culture and reinventing cities for a more sustainable and inclusive future. What does that actually mean? I guess this is about um, prioritising, the, I guess, the health of our planet, both holistically and systemically. So it's really the basis of regenerative design, which is something that we're working really rapidly towards integrating into our design process at Hassel. It's for us, it's about understanding our projects, not as kind of nodes or islands with a boundary, like a site boundary that essentially needs resources to operate, but places within broader interconnected social, economic, natural, climatic and cultural systems. So these are systems that we all draw from. We draw resources from them every day to live, but we need to consider also how we replenish these systems through the delivery of our projects in order to contribute to a future where people and nature can thrive together, right? Because otherwise we don't have a future where anyone thrives. I think nature would be fine without us. So we really need to start considering ourselves within that system as opposed to at the top of a hierarchy. And this in in its essence is deriving an understanding how to deliver holistic value, essentially. So the Hassel team that delivered the Resilient by Design project for the city of San Francisco took this approach exactly. It's a really beautiful example of how this can come together in order to understand all the systems and pinpoint where the value needs to be to have everyone happy, healthy and and thriving. So they undertook, firstly, deep stakeholder engagement. So not just with the city, but with a number of communities around the city as well. And then they worked with a broader team of specialists, so spatial engagement and technical, to map the systems I mentioned before. I think from memory they mapped about 16 different uh, sets of data essentially and overlapped them to start drawing a deeper understanding of place, so a really heavy understanding of context. So this is a really proactive approach to gaining that deep understanding and it like, essentially it underpins innovation, right? So if you know exactly what you're working with and where you're working with it, that's where those ideas can really come from. So it allowed the team to actually hone into another project. So there's a follow-on project that they are working on, Coma Creek, which is being delivered so out of our landscape team, whereas our urban design team actually started the project with the city of San Francisco. And it's an investment into community resilience through addressing water quality, future climate issues, flooding, social connection and biodiversity. 
and through this creating systemic resilience for San Francisco. And that would not have been possible without understanding the full and broader network of stakeholders and then the full and broader systemic network of resources, of how people move, of what future climate is predicted to do to all of these things. And so the investment essentially is not only in the right place, but it gets those multiple benefits that I talked about before. So we normally, as you know, project teams, will go through this process when forced into a corner, typically, when we think or we feel that it's the right thing to do, but we've been told no because of time, cost, you know, whatever it is. And what this is about is taking the process that we normally go through to defend what we feel is a really good idea, bringing it all the way up the front, getting all the right people around the table and being really proactive and evidence-based about it so that we don't have to run around looking for answers when we're time crunched and when all the things have already happened. But we can do it early and more rapidly in order to make sure that that value is embedded in projects and places from the outset. And so it's that deep collaboration that you're talking about there that really fosters that new state of togetherness. Absolutely. So when we look at the key challenges of that particular vision, what are the key challenges in bringing it to life across the built environment as a whole? So there's a couple of things that I think, I guess we've been very used to playing in our own space, yeah, particularly when it comes to sustainability. And I think that's been true for the last couple of decades. Where all of this came from in the built environment industry was uh, it was born out of a number of key professionals, either in engineering or in architecture or design, who wanted to get better outcomes and so came together and collaborated in order to do that. There's been, I guess, a, a disaggregation of that responsibility and accountability over the last couple of decades through striving for efficiency gains and very specified roles and accountability on projects, which is not a bad thing. But where that's gotten us to, it's gotten us so far in terms of efficiency, right, doing less bad. If we want to get different outcomes, we've got to flip back into that highly collaborative approach And so it needs to go from you over there, you do energy and you over there, you do water and you over there, you deliver the rating or the certification. We need to do it in a more, I guess, opportunity or problem centric way. So what are we trying to answer? What are we trying to deliver? And who do we need around the table to do that? It's going to be a little bit different in the way that you procure consultants. Like typically, again, an efficient, efficient, I'll say in uh, air quotes, if you like, there's a recipe for procurement, right? You get a lead consultant in, you don't need sustainability yet, you might get a cost consultant in, or we can have the broader engineering team later. You kind of got to put that aside for a second and say, well, what are we trying to solve and where's the risk? Where are all the unknowns and how do we solve that now? Yeah. I think if we all feel empowered to play a role in this shift, it will lead to industry-wide change. So I think we need to look at it as empowerment accountability at an individual level. It needs to be real and evidence-based though, and that means having, again, all the right people at the table when they need to be at the table. In a previous role, we were working on a a multi-res development that was targeted at providing affordable housing, and I was working client-side at this point, and early on in the project, we identified Passive House as a, a really great opportunity to deliver affordable housing at the outset, but also affordable housing for life. So Passive House is is focused on delivering not just energy efficiency, right, but also resilient, safe, clean, healthy homes. And if you think of the cohort that the housing was being delivered for, it makes sense. What 
happened was at the outset before as a developer, we'd procured any consultants or gone out to market or even approved the investment. Actually, there was a cost consultant that came back and said, yep, no problems. Passive house is going to cost you a 15% premium. Uh, And if you've ever worked in the development industry, 15% will kill a project from the outset. That's it. Project dead. So instead of nodding and saying, great, okay, well, we'll toss that idea out the window. We were convinced that, well, hang on, it really does deliver the value that these stakeholders need and as was the remit for this developer. So we asked why and where all the assumptions came from and because it was relatively new in the Australian space at that point in time, there was a lot of assumptions that had gone into that 15%. So what we did is we kind of convinced the development team to spend, I think we spent, must have been in the tens of thousands, 30,000, 40,000 to get the right people around the table, which on an $80 million project is a drop in the bucket. We got a builder around the table. We got chair of the Passive House Association around the table. We got a specific Passive House consultant. We got fire consultants. We went and thought through where's all the risks sit with this stuff, right? And we get all those people around the table and we put these assumptions that were made fairly by the cost consultant because they didn't have benchmarking to go on and we'll work through those issues. Where that landed and the consultant that worked with us in Troba at the time and it was a Development Victoria project, they've just released the Passive House playbook. So if you Google that, you can jump on and uh, they've got details of where this went. But it went from a 15% premium to a 2.8% premium. And so when you think about... What that means, it means that it actually becomes a viable solution for this project. And so that is a very clear example of how we need to shift how we're thinking. Some of that was truly in the supply chain. Some of it was in availability of skills, but a lot of it was in procurement. Um, It was in people adding risk. Um, And we heard this from the builder. So the, you know, the the consultants go, we'll, we'll charge a bit extra because the procurement's not clear and the builders go, well, we'll charge a bit extra because the requirements aren't clear and there's a bit of risk that we're taking that maybe the developer should be taking. Our subs are going to charge us more, so we'll up it for them as well. And what it created was a whole bunch of waste within the system, financial waste within the system that meant that these people couldn't have the kind of safety, resilience, efficiency that they needed to have an affordable for life home. And so, yeah, just bringing that up front made it viable. I thought was a really neat example of how getting the right people around the table at the right time to understand what was going on. It could end up being life-changing, right? It's not just a sticker. This stuff could be life-changing. It's such a great example. So how does a system thinking approach help address these and foster a great opportunity to achieve that vision? So I think it's about establishing value through considering all the custodians of place we're contributing to. So I talked a little bit before about understanding your stakeholder network. So it's not just, say, for someone like Hassel, someone who, you know, the client who's paying the bills, but who's influencing them uh, and what are their drivers and who's influencing them and what are their drivers. And that's not just all about understanding the investment that sits behind your projects, but that is part of it, but also understanding the end users Um, And it's not just the users who are going to inhabit, but also who will interact with it. We can't think of these places as just linear uses. We do, and sometimes, you know, developers well do leave the project once the keys are dropped off. And you can't just assume that people are going to come in and use it exactly the way that you want to be using it. So engagement's really key. 
putting the hat on if you can't engage of, of those stakeholders is really key. And I think in, in working as well very closely with a lot of our um, First Nations consultants and First Nations designers, learning to understand our non-human stakeholders as well. Um, and so I think that's really what, what a key bit to unlocking the systems approach. So can I ask, what do you mean by non-human stakeholders? So we're talking about all the stakeholders that aren't human. So if you think about, if you talk to um, John Hazelwood, who just recently worked with the City of Sydney on the their Nature Positive Sydney strategy, he's a landscape principal in our Sydney studio. He's fantastic. And you talk to him about the blue banded bee as a stakeholder because the blue banded bee contributes to biodiversity within our systems as a pollinator and that enables our biodiversity systems to thrive, our food systems to thrive and therefore our humans to thrive as well, right? And so thinking about that in more of a circular systemic way where we all have equal contributions to the system, us and animals and insects and all that sort of stuff, it allows you to understand what the systemic or the systems thinking approach actually means and how it actually plays out through all the different interconnected chains and relationships. So with Hassel, how are they developing sustainable precinct designs with all of these elements in mind? So firstly, I've been at Hassel for about a, a year and my role has been not to set up a, an ESD or sustainability consultancy inside Hassel. That creates more waste, right? Trying to compete with experts that are already out there. It's to understand how we leverage our experts because we've got a lot of really motivated, clever people internally. I just mentioned John before and work with those other clever people in industry better, faster, stronger so that we're doing all the easy stuff up front together so that we can then really focus all our efforts on that innovation I talked about before. So the way that we're doing that is understanding from Hassel's experience and our clients' experience. So the, the sustainability framework was built, that was my brief, was built on, I think they got about 80% internal engagement on what Hassel wanted to be from a sustainability perspective and engagement with a large number of our clients. So we looked internally and externally. And it was really about a transformation approach or an evolution of design practices in being really self-aware and authentic about what our role is in helping to identify and deliver these solutions. And that's that empowerment thing I was talking about before. So the way that we're doing this is learning from that experience, my previous experience wearing a number of different hats, and we've hired a really experienced, diverse global team to help fill some gaps as well. So that's my team that we're working with. And from that, we've really tried to understand what has been the, the key to success when we've had the big wins, the big wins in resources, so carbon, energy, materials, water, the big wins in terms of place, so through transport or biodiversity or nature or addressing climate change, the key wins when it comes to social impacts, so whether it's health and wellbeing, diversity, inclusion, social value, and it all comes down to exactly what I've been talking about. It's, ta it's understanding, it's a deep understanding of place, right? So this is a way that designers work anyway. They always start with a site analysis, a context analysis, so it's about evolving that to be broader across all those elements of sustainability that I just talked about. If you look at them all together, it's really just life. And then going really deep as well. So getting really thorough on purpose proactively before we put pen to paper. And Hassel has actually just done a piece of work with the Green Building Council of Australia to develop some of the credits for 
the next version of the Green Star Communities tool, which is the Green Building Council's tool that addresses precincts. And I've been really impressed at how the GBCA have leveraged a diverse array of expertise to really pull this approach into the tool. I think it's, it's really evident in the new approach. So I think the new tool, when it arrives, it will definitely require a more collaborative approach and a deeper systemic understanding of place to align with what the tool considers best practice or, or world leading. And it wasn't my team that worked with the Green Building Council on these credits. It was the experts in place. We worked on place credits and that's our designers. And so I think they've taken such a great approach to how to pull in all the different hats, like I was talking about before, that Development Victoria example, to set up this framework to guide people through this approach. Are you looking for a digitalisation and net zero partner to help you achieve your goals? Join the thousands of AEC and manufacturing customers globally who have turned to VinZero to start their journey toward a net zero future. With 32 offices around the world, VinZero can connect you to the right technologies and workflow processes so you can maintain your competitive position and increase profitability. VinZero has an industry expert to help you navigate the best pathway forward wherever you are on your digitalization and net zero journey. Visit VinZero.com to find out more. So can you share an example of a project that you believe has been centered around these qualities you're talking about recently? Absolutely. So our team in Sydney uh, are working on the Advanced Manufacturing Research Facility, which is the first building in Bradfield, uh, the new city out in Western Sydney. And there's a, a number of things that have come together on this project. John Hazel, who I mentioned before, has been leading a lot of the landscape on this project. And Liz Westgarth, who's our new managing director, who was kind of integral into the development of our sustainability framework and bringing me and the team on board as well, was in leading this project as well. And so this project is really interesting in the way that with, through John's work and his integration with the architectural team's work is really celebrating the Cumberland Plain of Western Sydney by immersing people in their activities with a richly planted permeable ground plane of locally underused species. And if you talk to John about how he takes this approach, right, he, he works very closely with our Indigenous consultants, but he also starts with nature and then carve out a space for people. And I think this is a really great example of where John's been able to really influence that and bring that out in a project. And then from a building perspective itself, the, the team that worked on it, so Jeff Morgan, who's also a principal in our Sydney studio, is all over this stuff, right? He, I have some really great conversations with him about good, efficient design. So the building form, he worked really closely with the technical consultants to get a really efficient building that will be net zero through the generation of energy on top of it. So it ticks all the energy boxes, but the team took it even further to the embodied carbon beyond operational carbon. And so the building itself is actually designed or has been conceived as a kit of parts, if you like. So it's a timber structure and it's made of prefabricated modular components, um, almost like a Meccano set. And so they're mechanically fixed together so they can be disassembled. They can be, the place can be expanded or contracted depending on what's needed, or it can even be taken apart and relocated and rebuilt somewhere else. And then we didn't just stop there. The team kind of did a, a whole bunch of work to make sure that ethos flowed into our material selection as well. So they've done a lot of supply chain research and innovation research in materials and have maximised a lot of the recycled content or waste content really, what we'd normally call waste, which we shouldn't be, uh, content into, into the rest of the material specifications for the building as well. 
So that's certainly a great example of how the role of design is evolving for the future. What role do you think systems ratings such as Greenstar play in developing sustainable projects for organisations like yours? Look, I think they are really important for projects and places and the industry as a whole. So I think we need to all also remember when we talk about these frameworks that there are organisations behind these that are and have been key for a very long time in advocacy in the built environment, getting things normalised. So things like if you look at what the Green Building Council did in terms of environmental product declarations and measuring embodied carbon in the industry and, you know, even if you go back further is getting low emission materials, so low formaldehyde, low VOC materials to industry. A lot of that was through a lot of the advocacy work that the Green Building Council did in this country and how they leveraged the rating framework they had to help get that done. So engaging with suppliers in industry, engaging with key stakeholders in industry to get it done collaboratively, I think was really key. The frameworks themselves are a really important way to transparently show how the intended outcomes were delivered. And it's a really important, I think, third-party certification, so independent certification is also really key, right? Because greenwashing is you know, at the fore at the moment. We've got the ACCC releasing the report of the review of consumer products industry. They've released draft guidelines on how to make sure that companies are not greenwashing. And there's more and more stringent reporting requirements coming in from a statutory perspective. So I think these frameworks are really, really key in making, I guess, keeping us honest, right, and accountability. I think up front, they need to work in conjunction with that deep understanding of place I was talking about before. Because if you use them out of context, we'll go back to our business as usual of here are your credits, here are your credits, here are your credits, and I'm just here to make sure we've documented something. Whereas if we get that deep understanding of place and design based on that context, the systemic context and the stakeholder context from the outset, get all the right people around the table, we know that we've got a contextually appropriate response based on a place within interconnected systems. And then that tells us how to leverage the frameworks to understand if we're benchmarked as world leading or best practice, or maybe if we've missed the mark a little bit. But they need to be used together. They can't be used independently because without one, you don't have, I guess, the verification and transparency. And without the other, you're developing responses that are not contextually appropriate and therefore don't sometimes really add the value that we need. So let's talk green buildings and approaches. What does it take to bring nature back to the built environment? I think it takes, again, making sure that you've got all the right people around the table to give you evidence-based answers. I think there's different ways to approach green internally and externally. And I gave you an example before about John and, and how he and a number of our other landscape principals approach green externally. We always have conversations around what more can it do? We've, we've talked about contribution to biodiversity systems. External greening can also help underpin activation strategies that can help fight climate change in terms of mitigate some of the impacts associated with climate change. Internally, it's an interesting one because, I guess, popping plants in a space doesn't always get the reaction that you need or want or that you're after. I think sometimes we just throw green at it because someone said they want connection to nature. I think, again, it's about asking why and understanding 
why that's been requested as a solution and what the needs actually are. So Daniel Davis, who's one of our researchers, has just released a piece of research, Office to Oasis, with our commercial and workplace team. So Ingrid Backer in our Melbourne studio and Domino Rich in our Sydney studio, who are our co-sector leads in the commercial and workplace space. And he really digs into what are all the benefits that internal greening can actually deliver? How can you do it really well? And how can we do it really wrong? And so understanding things like air quality, how it can support things like winter gardens in the appropriate climates, how it can actually provide psychological benefits and health and wellbeing benefits, and how it can actually help modulate things like humidity in an indoor environment as well. So he goes into all of those issues through benchmarking across the industry and also leveraging some of Hassel's project examples. It's a really great piece of, of research that really helps break it down in, in simple language. To what extent is Hassel working towards circularity as part of its approach to sustainability? So in addition to the adaptability design for disassembly and timber approaches that I talked about with the first building out in Western Sydney at Bradfield earlier, we've got a kind of established a clear awareness of influence versus control that designers have around materials. And it's not just material specification, but all the way further up the hierarchy, how do we reduce use in the first place? Razvan, who actually spoke at the Green Building Council's Transform Conference, is a senior associate in our Singapore studio, um, and he's done a fabulous piece of thought leadership around how we or what our cities will look like in the future where we've leveraged our existing assets as true value, true valuable assets. So he talks a lot about adaptive reuse and designers' role in that. So I've worked in the engineering space as well, and adaptive reuse has been around for a very, very long time. It's not new. But where investment or investor or cost-benefit used to drive us was very much around systems upgrades. So it was all the engineer's bag, right? So when I was working, working with Arup, we did a lot of work around systems engineering, so mechanical, electrical, and hydraulic upgrades to get better energy efficiency, a bit better quality of space and what that meant for things like central plants and all those sorts of things. And that can take us so far, and it's really important, right? But you add to that the layer of how we experience these spaces and the quality of these spaces. So this is where the likes of hassle come in. And you start to create, you need to create demand, right? These spaces also need to be good to inhabit as well as efficient, and they need to be comfortable to inhabit as well as efficient, because if we can't make these spaces competitive with new buildings coming to market, then almost what's the point, what's the play, we'll have to then go back in and refurbish and go back in and refurbish and it'll become almost like the churn we see in workplace every five to seven years. So he really talks about the longevity of existing assets through, again, we go back to the understanding of place that I was talking about before and, and what it means for people's experiences. So that's that's one piece is, is the adaptive reuse. The second is how to use less. So we've got, I've worked with a couple of principals in our Melbourne studio that pay immense detail to things like column grids, spacing and facade-based spacing and size in order to understand, well, what materials are available on the market? What size do they come in? And then how does that mean we can design to reduce the amount of waste that actually happens on site in construction? Because if we design it a little bit smaller, every panel gets cut off 100 mils and that's this much waste. Whereas if we actually think about what's available in our supply chain and how to use that more effectively, we reduce the waste up front as well. 
We've also had uh, Adam Pecos Co, who's an associate in our Perth studio. He was on secondment into our sustainability team for the last six months. He's been diving into our product specification. So how do we make sure that all of our, if we go to one of our materials libraries, either physical in our studio or digital in our digital space, how do we know that whatever we're selecting meets the minimum requirements for essentially what we or what industry pegs as a, a sustainable material? And again, evidence-based, right? So the way he did that was he picked up 20 specifications from globally across Hassle, so 20 projects, and he went and analysed each of those specifications in terms of how easy is it to engage with supply chain, find the information I need, feel confident that what I'm specifying is robust and does meet these requirements. And that's allowed us to look at, well, what have we got that's already good? Who's really easy to engage with and who's not? And how can we change that? but also where our minimum specification, because we've done it before and done it before and done it before, might not be the best that we can be specifying, go find an alternative. So it's already started to build that knowledge up in terms of the way that we specify materials. So you've got to attack it all the way from do we need to build, if we do need to build, how can we make sure we use less? If we are going to use stuff, how do we reduce the waste that comes out of that? All the way through to what we do have to specify, how do we make sure it, it cuts the mustard? We're going through that process in a really robust way in order to hopefully, well, I guess the intent is a couple of months from now, have evolved how we deal with materials, given that that's a space that designers do have a lot of control over in the delivery of projects. And so from that work so far, are there any particular trends you're starting to see or new trends at the materials level? Honestly, I think the trends that we're seeing at that level at the moment is that they're, I guess, One is there's lots of environmental product declarations in place and with some in the change we're finding it that we have to do more work than just accept the EPD. We actually have to go in and find out whether that EPD is robust, which is sometimes a little bit, I guess, more work which becomes a barrier to entry sometimes. It's a bit like the carbon offset market at the moment where there is in some areas, potential questions coming up as to how robust those APDs are. We aren't finding that a lot, but we definitely did come across that, having to kind of dig into it a little bit bit further. What we are seeing on a positive note, though, is Adam actually, as one of his trends, that product suppliers are asking more questions around how they can provide what we need to feel comfortable that what we're specifying is robust. So the motivation is there in industry, absolutely. But, and I saw this particular trend 20 years ago when I was working with Stockland on their head office in Sydney, the more we ask the same questions in multiple different ways, the harder it is on our suppliers. And so as an industry, I think we just have to, and this is an approach that we took at Hassel as well, don't, don't invent everything from scratch. Again, it's back to what's your role, where are you in the industry, who's already done it, where are the specialists? Go and find out what's been done already. So our questions back to those suppliers were, what are all the questions you normally get asked and where would you normally go to kind of put your product up? And so it's kind of cutting out again all the waste in the system. I think there's a lot of, same with embodied carbon calculators, right? There's 900 different carbon embodied carbon calculators on the market that all do something different. I think industry acceptance of a consolidated methodology and approach, we kind of need to get behind. And I think every practice, not just designers, but 
anyone who touches these elements in a project need to get behind because otherwise we're just one kick in the can down the road and two, making it harder to engage with our supply chains. So, Samantha, as we end our conversation today with all the great work that Hassel are obviously doing there, when you think future about the built environment, what is it that excites you the most? What excites me the most is definitely the potential. I think there's lots of motivation in industry all the way across industry. I think we're seeing um, more aspirational briefs come to market, more educated clients. And so I think it's that everyone's trying to get their head around what their role is and get really self-aware about it in order to empower their people to take action. And so it's actually, I've got a really positive outlook on all the things I've talked about today that it can happen. It's not something that you know, there's all these problems we've got to solve. We're all moving in that direction. So I think what really excites me the most is that I think, you know, we're ready to take the opportunity to shift how we do things in order to get better outcomes. Well, Samantha, it's certainly great to hear Hassel's approach to reinventing precincts and cities for a more sustainable and inclusive future. And we look forward to hearing more about those outcomes in the years ahead. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. This podcast was brought to you by VinZero. VinZero helped the AEC and manufacturing industries keep pace with digital change and achieve their technological and sustainability leadership goals. VinZero is a company that cares about creating and building a better world. Together, we are working with industry and environmental experts, providing forums and platforms through our VinZero Think community to create conversations that matter to our future generations. We invite you to join in the conversation and participate in our Think community. Like and subscribe to Think Future to stay up to date with the latest innovations and conversations as we take AEC and manufacturing around the world closer to zero. You can download our podcasts at vinzero.com or from your favourite podcast platform. From Vinzero Think Future, thanks for listening.